0: I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, finding yourself in life's little moments. So, dear listener, I'm sitting on one of my favorite benches, as usual, making this podcast overlooking the vast Pacific, and it's midday on a Saturday. It's a rare day in that there are very few waves, and the water is just this beautiful turquoise blue. In this little bay near where I live, which is a marine sanctuary, I could see, as I walked by, snorkelers, their little snorkel things bobbing in the water, and it was the perfect day. It's the perfect day for... looking around and seeing the beautiful fish that live here and as I was walking by coming up to this bench it was low tide so the water was even more still than usual and what was interesting is that as I was walking along the bay as I was coming up here I could begin to hear almost the sound of like a rustling and I looked just down to the rock where the rocks meet the water and I could see that almost imperceptibly the water was beginning to make its return, the ocean was beginning to flow in, it was changing like that (laughs) sea change, it was changing from ebbing now to just the bare beginnings of flowing in and it'll ultimately reach high tide in a few hours but as I was walking by it was that sort of beautiful interface between the ebb and the flow between low tide and just the beginning of high tide as it starts so the podcast that I want to make today is about a memory that I've got and I wanted to share this with you and it's not an easy one to remember but I somehow feel that it's a kind of essential truth. Um, I'm feeling more and more that, you know, as Jesus said, the truth will set us free, but I somehow feel that we no longer have the luxury of allowing the truth to be hidden. It doesn't feel like a personal thing on some level, although it is very personal, and it also does feel like a personal thing, but It also feels somehow like some grand injunction to reveal simply what is and I think Jesus said that for a reason, you know, the truth will set us free. But now as we enter into I think what really is this next stage in human history where we're the ones that are going to determine the future of life on this earth. You know, when I say that to you, sitting here overlooking the vast Pacific, we actually have to reckon with ourselves and with life and with the past and with what is in the light of, in the context of, the need for a shift. You know, Martin Luther King said this beautiful thing about how the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that justice occurs on a personal level, it occurs on a community-wide level, it occurs on a country-wide level, on a global level, and if we can save ourselves in this planet it will become a cosmic phenomenon of unprecedented proportion in terms of the life here on Earth. So it's in that spirit and that context that I share what I share with you, because I think that whatever any of our truths actually is, it's really important, it's really significant, and there's not a relative thing around this, you know, what is, is what actually is. I don't believe in relative truths, I don't believe that, <laughs> frankly, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh, but I don't really believe that people have each of their own individual perspectives, I don't really believe that. I think there's some, you know, there's what happened, There what it, there's what is and and that's it, like the light of day, so maybe that comes from all my work as a photographer where, you know, I was looking out through the glass of the camera, of the cameras that I used over time, I was looking out at life and there's a sense of objectivity about that and of enormous intimacy. So all of these things are palpably near. Everything that we go through is palpably near, and it's a matter of restoring our lives by recognizing, you know, what is, what was. So what I'm going to talk about here is not an easy subject, and I know sometimes people listen to my podcasts and share them with their children, which is a beautiful thing, and sometimes I also... Make podcasts about my beautiful students, and that 's just a wonderful part of what I do absolutely wonderful and I have to tell you, dear listener, that as i 'm making this podcast now i 'm looking out over the the rocks and the ocean below, right below where i 'm standing, and there are two scuba divers and um, and they 're in fluorescent green. Uniforms uniforms or suits, I think, because then they become visible underwater, and that helps with their safety. And there's also a bright fluorescent orange buoy that marks where they're diving, and I can see them. They've surfaced, and I think, oh, my gosh, what an amazing metaphor. These divers before me as I'm talking to you are going down into the depths and discovering what's there. So that is what I'm going to share with you, the nature of what I'm going to share with you. So I was married for many years, and now I'm not, and the reason I'm not is what I'm going to talk about. So there was a particular instance that felt to me like a kind of defining moment, and that's the instance that I'll share with you, and it's the truth of what happened. So on the morning of December 1st, 2012, I was down in the kitchen where I was living married life and I was rummaging around in the fridge and I can't remember exactly what I was looking for. It could have been a bar of very dark chocolate. Now anyone who loves chocolate knows that you tend to become kind of intent (laughs) when you're looking for it and when you like you really want it so anyway I was looking for probably what was a bar of dark chocolate in the fridge because it's much more delicious if it's frozen or refrigerated so that's what I was doing and uh, I I, it was one of those um, fridges where the freezer part is over the fridge part and there are two doors one opens above the other so I was looking quite intently in the freezer part and I'd open the door and looked in the freezer, and uh, and couldn't find my bar of chocolate. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, I will look in the fridge. So I bent down and opened the fridge door, but I had forgotten that I had opened the freezer door above me. So as I was bent down looking into the fridge, looking for what I was looking for, I'd forgotten that the freezer door was still open that I hadn't shut it. So I didn't find what I was looking for in the fridge. And I came up fast from a squatting position. I came up really fast and the freezer door was right open. It was right above me open. What happened then was that I went head first up and I was in pretty good shape at that time. I was in really good shape and I went straight up from a squat into the bottom of the freezer, open freezer door. It was a moment of searing pain. So I touched my head and there was blood and my husband came down and I didn't know if I'd really hurt myself. And I kind of tended to that and then sort of stayed at home pretty much the rest of the day. But the next day I began to feel pretty strange. And um, I tried to go to work to teach piano, but I really didn't feel well. And everybody at work said, listen, you don't look well. You need to go, you actually need to go home. You know, you need to go home. So I went home and then that afternoon I realized that things really weren't right. And my husband had gotten home from work and I said to him, listen, I, I actually think I really need to go to the doctor. So I planned to go the next day. And I said, I'm not sure if I can drive, can you take me? And at that moment, something really strange happened, which is that he burst into the most god-awful, violent rage and accused me of being, said to me, how dare I ask him? How dare I be so inconsiderate to ask him to take me to the doctor? So, that was kind of the end of that conversation what happens when something like that happens to you when when you experience that kind of violent intensity is that you sort of this is my experience you kind of leave your body you you sort of are, find yourself standing beside yourself in a in a strange way where you're not really connected to who you are and i think that that may be something that is done on a uh, almost on a cellular level in order to survive what what's happening, but I just was, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't, I wasn't well and I didn't feel that I could really push it. So the next day I drove myself to the doctor. I got an appointment. I drove myself to the doctor and what would turn out to be was that I had a really severe concussion. And in trying to drive, fortunately it was only two miles I felt I couldn't actually go more than 10 miles an hour um, because of the feeling that I had in my head. It was just awful. So I finally got to the doctor, and she diagnosed it, that it was indeed a concussion. And that concussion would end up being so severe that I was out of work for the next five months and pretty much offline pretty much of everything literally and figuratively. I couldn't actually look at computer screens, I couldn't look at TV. I couldn't uh, I slept for 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, it was really severe. And but that moment which I'm telling you now, dear listeners, sort of choking back tears really, it's a feeling that I've gotten in my heart as I'm telling you this is that you know that moment where I'd asked my husband, if he would take me, and that the response was what I described to you, was a kind of shock that I just put aside in the recesses of my being because I think I instinctively knew there was no way that I would be able to address it, nor did anything, was anything ever said again about it, you know, from the other side. So, anyway... Sometime down the road a bit, maybe a year and a half or two later, um, we were driving together, and it was winter. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I'd just come from just my annual checkup from the doctor. And it was interesting, because over time I'd seen my doctor for a period of a good 15 years prior to that. I kept with the same person for all that time. And what I noticed is that at a certain point, My doctor began to ask me, I think just as a matter of course, if I felt safe in my marriage. It almost was like a question that now became part of the checkup that I felt must be being asked, you know, of all patients now. Um, So, and I have to tell you, dear listeners, I'm telling you this, that there is this, there's been increasing clouds covering the blue of the sky, but in front of me, as these clouds increase towards the horizon, there's like a patch of blue that has just opened, almost like an eye, and there is this ray of illumination that's stretching from that little tiny patch of blue towards the horizon in front of me. So anyway, I began to notice, and that my doctor would ask me every year, do I feel safe in my marriage? That was part of her checkup and probably part of the checkup that she did with everybody. And I would always say yes, you know, because I always felt like, well, you know, to not feel safe means that there's physical violence. And I I, I just didn't, I didn't think of myself as being characterized. I didn't feel that I could characterize myself because of my own preconceptions as somebody who, quote, wasn't safe in their marriage. But her question over time, and over several years, began to gnaw at me. And even though I answered in the affirmative, yes, to her question, I began to wonder. I'll remember one afternoon in winter, maybe a couple of years later, snowy winter afternoon, and there was snow on the ground, and We were living in a different place, and it was... The snow was piled up high around the driveway. You know, as we pulled in, we pulled, and the snow was also falling. It was falling in the soft, silent way that it does. Light flakes. And I turned to my partner, my husband, and I said, You know, I'm beginning to feel like I don't feel... Safe, and at that moment he flew into another rage and stormed out of the car and went into the house and there I was left in the car the snow falling around silent, nothing and I think that was when I began to feel that there really wasn't going to be any way to discuss what was happening, and it took another two and a half years after that, or a year and a half perhaps it was, to actually leave, because I sensed that there wasn't any way for things for the situation to be redressed or discussed or in any way kind of, you know, settled between us to come to terms with this. And um, one evening, after an increasing amount of disturbance and fear and a sense of being under threat, I looked in the mirror and I realized that I couldn't continue. So at that point, not knowing really where I was going to go or where I was going to stay or what was going to happen, I basically walked out the door. And the thing that I did when I walked out the door was I took the things that were most precious to me and put them in a box. And the things that were most precious to me were my diary from childhood, my passport, which carried my visa to this beautiful country where I now live and where I've come for a period of over 35 years that has been a haven for me from the time I was just out of college, and some precious letters, a checkbook, credit cards, keys. It was the bare minimum. And I put all those things in a box. Most of them were actually in the top drawer of my, of my desk. And the next day I went to the bank and I asked them if I could get a safe deposit box. And fortunately they had one available. Banks don't always have safe deposit boxes available. And I put everything in that safe deposit box, and that was the very beginning, dear listener, of a feeling of home. It would take me another three years to begin to establish myself in any real way, someplace where I could actually call home. But that safe deposit box, which held my childhood diary, letters from my dearest, beloved Nanny and Godmother Flora, about whom I wrote my memoir, precious letters and pictures of my childhood. These were the mementos of my life that were there in that safety deposit box. And I think a safety deposit box is an incredible metaphor because it's about the safest place one can put things and I knew that that little tiny box, which was probably only six inches wide and a foot long and four inches high, was really the first thing place that I had that I called mine, really mine. I was the only one who held the key, and that me in the bank <laughs> and um and also to say, dear listener, that you know if one approaches one's partner, husband, wife, whoever it is, with fear and with some kind of intention to try and broach something, and it's met with anger and threats, then you know that's, I have to say, not really a very good sign. It's, not, it's something that should probably be paid attention to, <laughs> because those are the moments when something could actually develop in a positive way. And if that path of development and of intimacy and wholeness and love is blocked right if it's blocked then one has to then turn to oneself and say to oneself okay what do i want for my life what do i need to do you know what do i what what do i want life is not infinite what should i do what do i do where do i go how do i cope and i can't prescribe any formula for anyone else but I can tell you that life is short and life is delicate and the human psyche and the human soul is something that longs to have and share intimacy with another and that's the beautiful thing that can be possible as the tide is coming in you can hear it below the waters crashing more the tide is coming in it's rising It's on its flow into and towards the land. It's extraordinary. The planet Earth is just extraordinary. I hope to God that we'll save it. We'll save it because it's now up to us to do so. So as I said before, that is the context within which I'm sharing this because what I'm realizing is that the kind of and I'll just say straight-out violence that I depicted to you and hurt is endemic. You know, sometimes it's against women. Sometimes it might be against a man in a relationship. I think there's a preponderance or a a, a majority of these kinds of situations where the woman is really the victim. I think worldwide that is the case globally. Um, And unless and until... This kind of thing is just, you know, revealed for what it is, fleshed out, brought into the light of day, then I don't know how we're going to move forward. You know, I feel this is a kind of essential element, a very big and essential aspect of what it means for us as humans to evolve is for the revelation, the reality Of what goes on often behind closed doors to be revealed and then the truth as Jesus said will set us free and you know in terms of a safe deposit box that term safe safety I was talking with a friend recently and she had been doing some research on homelessness and she said something really interesting to me she said, you know, homelessness is no longer just defined as a person not having a physical home, a person, say, being out on the street or in a shelter or in some place that's really not theirs, that they don't rent, that's, that's not theirs, homeless, out out in the world without a place of their own, in whatever way, shape, or form that might be homeless. She said homelessness is not just the lack of a physical place for one's being one can be homeless, she said, and this is what she said her research was about. One can be homeless if one doesn't feel safe where they live. That's a state of homelessness. And I thought, how incredible. I felt in a way happy to know that there was now some kind of recognition that to be home, to have a home, is not just a physical state It's actually an emotional state. It's the feeling of safety. A place where one also feels, has a physical place, but also feels at ease. Free, happy, at home in themselves, at home with whomever they live with. It's not to say it's always easy, but there's some feeling of being safe. So... My safe deposit box was like the beginning of a little root taking hold in the earth from which ultimately a plant would begin to grow and is growing now, home. It was just the bare, bare beginnings of a feeling of something my own. Something that was safe, something I could control, something that I could have a sense of solidity and existential tendability. It was something I could call mine, mine. And all those beautiful bank tellers, I'd always enjoy going and just looking in my safe deposit box and putting something new in as my journey unfolded and begin to store like a squirrel. It's nuts, you know, it's food for the winter. I would store these things in that beautiful safe deposit box and feel that it was the beginning of my life, the beginning of my new life, the beginning of my new life. So in the end, as I, was, as I was making my way on my journey to try and heal and establish my life anew, the recalling of that story, which I told you when I got that concussion, the recounting of that story and the fact that I didn't have much money, those two things resulted in my being represented by one of the best lawyers in the county where I lived, one of the most long-established law firms and the best lawyer a woman. It was the recounting of the story that I just told you, and she did all that for nothing. She represented me pro bono, and what that means is that I didn't pay for her services. She did it all for free, which was just incredible and invaluable. I could never have done anything like that myself in that situation. You know, lawyers often get <laughs> a bad name, probably for good reason in many cases, but I can tell you that I've been absolutely blessed with the people who have come to help me in this legal situations. So I feel, dear listener, that as we make our way, if we are moving on that beautiful arc that Martin Luther King described, that arc that bends towards justice, then we will be buoyed by providence and by, to whatever extent we can muster it, our own perseverance. And that little safe deposit box where I put all my beautiful little things, and I have to say that the other thing I put in there was... One book, and that book was by in addition to my childhood diary, that book was by a Jesuit priest and philosopher named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And I even feel my heart well up, as I tell you that, because he's one of the most beautiful writers and thinkers, no longer alive, that I think mankind has ever known, humankind up to this point, because he had a vision of a future where love, humans would rediscover love, that when they discovered love, it would be like the rediscovery fire. When we harness the forces of love, it will be like we've rediscovered in the most magnificent and grand and powerful way, like we've rediscovered the force of fire. And if you think back, What would it have been like way back in those deep, dark recesses of human history when humans discovered fire? How that would have changed life then? You know, I just think about it. Suddenly, there's light when it's dark. Suddenly, things can become edible that weren't edible before. All sorts of things would become possible. And now, all these millennia hence... If we can harness those forces of love, face the music, as they say, and uh, the truth, it'll allow us to be more available, and if it's anything that's going to save us, it's that. So with that, dear listener, I bid you adieu. Thanks for listening. I haven't shared much of this before, but... Like I said, it's in the light of the truth of our hope for ourselves and for this beautiful earth upon which we live that I share it with you now. The truth will set us free. God bless you and warmest wishes now and always, now and always.